This is Authors in Focus. Welcome back to the Authors in Focus podcast. Today we are joined with a very, very special guest. I've been excited about this interview for such a long time. We are here with Daniel Handler, known all over the world, also by his pseudonym, Lemony Snicket. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, it's um, I live in Toronto, Canada. And finally, we're seeing some spring, which is always a good thing because it's been a blistering cold winter. Uh, well, I am in San Francisco, California, which has beautiful weather and, you know, is a um, is a seething uh, bastion against the juggernaut of encroaching uh, fascist capitalist enterprise. So, you know, it's a mixed bag, I think, for both of us. It is. It is. It, it totally is. But, you know. I'll take some things about about here, but the weather is definitely not one of my favorites. Um, Daniel, I always like to start off these interviews with a fun, thought-provoking question before we get into uh, talking all about you and your work. So my first question is, if you could have a drink, any type of drink, with any author, living or dead, who would it be and why? <laughs> Gosh, I'm having more trouble, I think, deciding on the drink. When I think about, <laughs> uh, when I think of different authors... Who I'd like to meet, the drink probably changes. Like, I think if I met Raymond Chandler, who I think would be uh, an adventure to meet, then I think it would have to be a Jim Gimlet in honor of The Long Goodbye, uh, one of the most beautiful novels in the English language, and which is full of Jim Gimlets. But then with Haruki Murakami, a Japanese author I'd love to meet, I mean, assuming that we could speak in the same language, I believe he enjoys like a milkshake. And then with Virginia Woolf, right. who I would, of course, love to meet, then I think that would have to be some kind of British tea. But I might be reaching for kind of British stereotype there. <laughs> I don't know. Then the list just goes on. Then I begin to think, like, well, Toni Morrison. But then I know people who've had drinks with Toni Morrison, and I don't, they, don't, they didn't mention anything remarkable about the beverage. The conversation was remarkable, so then it wouldn't matter what beverage, which would kind of be refreshing not to worry about the beverage. I don't know. I'm not always good at these hypothetical questions because I take them quite literally and unpack them as I've done in front of you, which I think is not what anyone is looking for. But all I no. think, really with this question, like living or dead, I think how shocked would the dead artist be just to find themselves alive? <laughs> and, then, and then it would be such a like such a meager second thing to learn to say like, yes, you've been brought back from the dead so that I can have a drink with you instead of what they would want to know everything about the world. You know, like, Oh my God, I'm back alive. Like what's going on? How did the second world war end? And I would say like, we'll talk about that. But right now I'm going to pour you a nice beverage. Taking it one step more literally without the necromancy, having a drink with a dead author would be quite boring and, and quite disturbing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, part of the thing of being a, a, a fan of literature is that, particularly with dead authors, or certainly with any author you haven't met, you project a whole fantasy onto them, just as, and just as your reading of the book has as much to do with your own personality as it does with the writer's personality, your own fantasy of that is even more so. So, 
I mean, I've met many authors I admire, and some of them we've become friends, and some of them we had a perfectly lovely time. So some of them it was completely awkward and terrible. So I think uh, that it's a reminder that the the person often has nothing to do with the art that you're admiring, even if you admire it and you feel like it comes from a distinct personality. Right. And it's tough, too. I mean, in in, um, in this generation, uh, even more so. But the separation of the art from the person is something that some people have a really easy time with and something that some people have a really difficult time with. I find that, you know, especially being music, being probably my first love, having always been involved in, in music as a musician and working with musicians, um, it's amazing what people are still willing to accept from the rock stars, especially the rock stars from the past, considering some of the horrible behavior. And that's what you always hear, you know, oh, well, I separate the art from the artist. And sometimes that's hard to do. I guess so. I I often think of this time in ninth grade when I was trying to hang out with some guys that were like, cooler and more punk than I was, which just would have been about anyone in terms of who was more punk than I was. But that, and that one of them said, uh, well, anyway, somehow I had expressed a, 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 a positive statement about the band The Clash, and that one of these guys said, I'm never going to forgive The Clash for their album Combat Rock. Which is now funny to think about it because, of course, if you weren't going to forgive the class for something, it would be for everything that came after Combat Rock. But moving on, he said, I will never forget, forgive the class for Combat Rock. And one of the other guys said, oh, that's so funny. I just saw the class and they were really upset that like some American teenager was never going to forgive them. And I think of that conversation often because I think there's some fantasy of of, uh, oh, I, you know, I don't like this artist anymore, or I've thought about this, and I, I reject <clears> this, <throat> and I just think, like, who are you? What are you supposed to, like, Italo Calvino is supposed to say, oh, gosh, I didn't realize that, you know, Doris from Pleasanton, California is mad at me. What am I going to do now? But <laughs> the whole fantasy that you're actually interacting with artists is a strange one. Um so I agree. There's certainly lots and lots of artists who've done horrible things. And uh, I feel bad for the people who were uh, subjected to those horrible things. But uh, with very, very rare exception, I have not been subjected to those terrible things. And so I didn't really think about them. Got it. Yeah, no, I understand that completely. My kids are, are um, I have a son who just turned eight and a daughter who's turning 10. Both, um, both obsessed with, with unfortunate events. My daughter has read all the books. And my son has obviously watched the entire TV series. So they're actually really stoked that I'm talking to you right now. And they were poking their heads in the door. And I'm like, okay, this is it. So I I am going to, and also because I do uh, focus a lot on fantasy and science fiction and uh, subgenres of those, I will be talking to you about unfortunate events quite a bit, although I'd like to also uh, delve into your um, adult work under your own name. But I'd like to start at the very beginning. Uh, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Like, where you actually got that buzz where you said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? Uh, take us on a little bit of the journey that led to the very first book that you published. Well, I would say that learning that I wanted to be a writer came 
um, uh, you know, uh, at a very early age, much, much earlier than any kind of journey that got me to being published. So when I was young, um, I went to the library a lot. We had there was a very nice library walking distance uh, from my house. And um, I had some good librarians who kind of guided me towards books that I found interesting. And there were some uh, writing classes there or kind of events with writers that happened at the library. And I met a few writers and learned a, a, a little bit, as much as a child can learn about the process of making books. So I remember writers brought uh, different sketches for different illustrators. They showed how they had a draft that looked like this and how they X'd it out and they made things better. They really... Um, I really grasped the idea of writing things down and trying to make them better and trying to put them out into the world. And so that was a very young age that I wanted to be part of the making of the literature that I was liking a lot. And I, I mean, as with anyone who dreams of an occupation when you're young, it has very little to do with the actual nuts and bolts of the occupation when you're older. And so I got to college. Um, I had a really good uh, writing teacher who was who kind of worked us all very hard. Her name is Kit Reed. She's a wonderful novelist. Uh, we lost her a few years back, but she was a real mentor to me. And um, her writing class was not a workshop. It was not any kind of soft material about inspiration. You had to turn in 10 pages of fiction uh, a week and then meet in her kitchen and talk about it alone. And she was pretty merciless in terms of making you better and making you go and read things to make you better. And um, it was a lot of individual attention and individual reflection. And when it was time to graduate from college, I said to her, I need you to tell me if I'm good enough to be a writer. And she said, it's not really about whether you're good enough. You have to figure out if you really like it or not. And I was so mad at her because I thought, why don't you just tell me my future? Why do I have to work on it myself? But she was right, of course. And so she recommended that I get a job that allowed me as much time as possible to write and to kind of see if I could really stick to it and if I really liked doing it. And so I had a sequence of miserable office jobs, but they were all part time. And the days that I didn't work, I, I stayed in various crummy apartments where I was living and sat at the same old table we kept uh, bringing from one place to another and tried to get a book down on paper. And I would guess that all of that from the library to the advice was somehow the the kind of first steps of the journey towards getting published. So it's hard to answer that. But that was I knew at a very young age that, that uh, books were important to me and that I wanted to be part of that conversation. Awesome. So. Let me ask you, where did Lemony Snicket come from? Where did where did it originate that you were going to write this massive game changing series, which I will go into the fact that I I, I think it's a series just as much for adults as it is for children. Um, but where did where did the concept of Lemony Snicket come from? Where did it all begin that you decided you were going to have two uh, versions of yourself as a writer? Well, as I started to write a series of unfortunate events, it became clear to me that there was a strong narrator who was something of a character in the books. And I and so in terms of having two parts of me, I think it is more that I thought it would be interesting to publish the books under the name of the narrator rather than the name of the author. 
And that may seem like a kind of silly distinction, but I liked the idea of, I have, I always like a narrator. I like an unreliable narrator. I like being reminded that a story is only the story that someone is telling you and that the story would be different if someone else were telling it. And so that from that is where the idea of Lemony Snicket uh, came from. And there are other, um, I mean, there are some great unreliable narrators in children's literature um, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweller, which is a, a classic by E.L. Konigsberg. There is a, um, a, a mysterious narrator. You don't know who it is for a long time. Roald Dahl uses a, a way where he's talking directly to the reader uh, and interrupting himself as he's telling the story. So those are the kind of books I liked. I liked books in which there was a mysterious space between literature and life, and you weren't sure exactly what was real or even what real meant. Right. I recently started writing. I haven't really done too much with my writing. I do have some self-published work. Uh, Writing, for me at least, has always been uh, a little bit of a narcissistic process in the sense that I've always used too much of my own voice put too much of myself uh, into my writing. Uh, It's just what comes out. I've even included myself in novels as myself as a character. So what I want to know now that I, I, you just explained something that I didn't know about Lemony Snicket is how much of the Lemony Snicket character is you? Well, I mean, I would say I identify pretty strongly with a man who is um, observing the uh, atrocities and inconveniences of life through a prism of having read too much literature and spent too much time alone thinking. So in that, I think that we resemble each other. I, of course, have never met the Baudelaire orphans. I'm not, as far as I know, part of a secret organization, but I'm interested in the journey of childhood, and I feel that reading and being involved with literature makes you a part of a, of a kind of a secret society. So I think in many ways, Lemony Snicket is kind of a literal version of various uh, incorporal fantasies I turn to often. Right. Now you, you've had enormous success with this series. Uh, it's been adapted first as a film with the, at that time, biggest actor in the world, arguably, uh, and then uh, more recently adapted as a long-running or fa- fairly long-running excellent television series with Neil Patrick Harris. What does the author who's created this world think when this happens, seeing this happen, seeing your work and your world and what you've created multiple times on um, various media formats, knowing that there are people all over the world that have never been exposed to may, may have never been exposed to the books that are now discovering the Baudelaire orphans, discovering the brilliant villain that is Count Olaf for the very first time. Like, that's got to feel pretty amazing. It's very strange is what it is. It is, of course, amazing, and it is an enormous blessing in terms of what it has allowed me to do in my life and my work. Um, But most of all, to me, it is really strange. I never thought of myself as an author who would be particularly popular. Um, The books and the kind of literature that I was interested in is really, um, you know, often strange and not mainstream. Uh, You know, I've named these orphans after a poet that I enjoyed reading from the time I was 12 years old, who is uh, 
Charles Baudelaire's poetry is, um, you know, uh, pretty monstrous and odd and not even revered that much in the world of poetry, let alone in a world where most people are not thinking about poetry. And so the kinship I feel with, um, with other artists of that stripe who are strange and who have small cult followings did not ready me for being mainstream in any particular way. And so it's very, very strange. It's strange to fly to Vancouver as I did and walk into a warehouse and have people building a lake and a boat and all kinds of things that they have to work very hard on just because I wrote some sentences down on pieces of paper because I thought they would be interesting. So it's very, very strange for me. But have you enjoyed seeing the various incarnations of your world? Has it been something? I mean, there are a lot of people that won't watch a movie or a TV show from a book adaptation. Like, I know people that refuse to watch Game of Thrones or refuse to watch Wheel of Time just because they're such book purists and they know that it's going to distort their their love of the original source material. You're the author watching what has been created and conceived by others of your work. Have you gotten a chance to take it in? Have you watched? Have you enjoyed? Like, I'm... I'm really interested in this because very few people will ever have the opportunity to have their work adapted this way. And you've had it done twice. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty bizarre. Um, I was involved both times in the adaptations. So I was I wrote many drafts of a screenplay for the film before I was fired. I uh, ran the writer's room for most of the um, writing of a series of unfortunate events on Netflix um, I was, you know, uh, in varying degrees on set and talking about casting and co-writing the song and doing all kinds of work in which I was involved in it. And what happens when you do that is I think I don't know of any artist who's involved in a film or television this way. And you can't really just sit down and watch it the way you can sit down and watch a film that you have nothing to do with. Because I see various drafts. I see like different edits and uh, mixes for what's going on. Um, I, of course, have an eye for what looks weird. I remember the day that that costume looked strange and, and had ripped, but we had to film it anyway. And so you can, if you look closely and you see one gesture, you see how it is, you know, all these tiny things like that, that you don't really know um, that if you're not involved in it. And so um I'm much more interested when people tell me what they think and the experience that they have of watching it. And I get a lot of uh, correspondence from families in one way or another who say, oh, during COVID, you know, we parceled out the episodes of a series of unfortunate events because it was such a family event and we liked staying together. Or, um, you know, my son was turning into a Jim Carrey fan and for some reason he'd never heard that Jim Carrey was in this movie and so I surprised him and we put it on the screen and we had a great time. Like, I enjoy hearing stories about that. I enjoy hearing what other people's reactions are. My reaction is not, is all gummed up in, um, in, you know, the years that it takes to make something like that. Absolutely. And that makes total sense because it seems like it would be quite the process. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to stick with unfortunate events, but I'm shifting gears to the fact that you wrote what is in essence a series that is read by children, but it's a dark, dark series. It's a clever series. There are 
references all over the place that mainly uh, only adults would get. So there's a lot of stuff in there for adults. What, like, what was, what were you thinking when you decided to write this dark, dark series where you put these poor children through absolute hell? Like this story is really every child's nightmare. And the nightmare just keeps happening over and over and over again. And, and there are these glimmers of hope and then they shatter. And then there's more glimmers of hope and then they, they shatter even more. So like what inspired you to write a series that, um, like I said, is in essence a children's series, but really such a, a child's nightmare, dark and in some ways, very adult story. Um, well, I think because that was just the sort of thing that I have always liked best. I like when something dangerous is happening. I like when something dreadful is on the horizon. You know, I I, I, I was one of those young people where if I turned the page and then the next word on the page was witch, then I knew that was going to be a more interesting story than if it was the phrase summer camp. I was interested in... Um, that kind of thing. When I was, I think in about seventh or eighth grade, I was trying to read a lot of Shakespeare by myself. And I remember that once I figured out what a tragedy was, that it meant that people were going to be dying at a great rate. I thought those are the kind of things that I want to read. The comedies, I didn't get the jokes. I didn't care about people hooking up and getting married, but people dying or fighting off witches or getting murdered, everything like that was super interesting to me. And in terms of it being... Adults, I think it is and it isn't. I mean, um, the most enduring children's literature, old folk tales and fairy tales that have been given to children in every culture, um, as long as we've had uh, anything written down and often quite a bit longer than that, are full of dreadful things happening. Right. They're full of monsters and curses and transformations and hauntings and getting lost in uh, terrifying landscapes. And I think that. You know, there's a, a boatload of psychological analysis explaining why children are interested in that, but I think actually everyone is. But in the literature for children, it's kind of more outright and more stated there. And so that was the sort of thing I was interested in. I just liked it. I didn't like a book in which uh, good people were rewarded and bad people were punished and that everything kind of worked out. I liked books that mimicked the chaos that I saw around me in everyday life, but also had a sense of melodrama and a kind of stylish dread. That's my idea of a good time. But it definitely is that. And I mean, yeah, I guess that makes sense also in the sense of uh, like the, the original grim fairy tales and the Hans Christian Andersen stuff. I mean, I've, I read, we have a whole bunch of volumes of, of old fairy tale books and I've read a lot of them to my kids and I've had to like stop myself reading some of them because it, some of the, what happens is truly, truly frightening. And you can totally see the, um, I don't want to say disnification, if that's a word, of fairy tales and the way they've been spun to kids, but they sure aren't those original versions. No, and even, I mean, even the Disney versions that came out of a previous generation are so much darker and truer to their source material than um, than the creations that are made for children nowadays. Um, and I think that um, we've seen the like just the long-standing appeal of what is of of darkness and dread in for children. I think that's I'm, I think I, I think of myself as part of a very long tradition of uh, uh, scaring children who wanted to be scared. And you uh, definitely did that with your villain uh, Count Olaf, who is one of my favorite villains. I think one of the most brilliant. Uh, antagonists ever written in literature 
what exactly inspired Count Olaf? Who, who, who were you thinking? Who were the, um, who were the inspirations or the amalgamations of, of, of characters past that, that inspired this, this amazing, amazing villainous, truly evil, yet also somehow charming antagonist? Um, I, I mean, I think it's every single person who antagonizes you when, uh, you're a child and takes delight in it. You know, it's every, uh, uh, teacher and administrator at your school who takes a delight in the rules that are making you miserable. It's every student who is working the power dynamic to their own selfish advantage and leaving you behind. Um, and as you grow older, it's everyone who's terrorizing you at work or uh, on the evening news or in the streets or in your own family. Um, uh, and so I think for me, it, uh, uh, Count Olaf demonstrates the kind of allure of evil and how much more fun it is to think about villains, but also the sheer terror of being villainized. And obviously it's it's um, played off really well because <laughs> he really... Um, often wasn't the greatest master of disguise yet uh he was so full of himself and he had this team of of people this this crew around him that just kind of did everything he said which which made it really interesting and what one of the things i i really uh i i loved about the series as well uh is that it it really uh displays the intelligence and versatility of children that so many adults take for granted and don't realize as a parent, you know, with a, with an eight year old and a 10 year old, uh, kids are smart and <laughs> kids get things. And, uh, I thought that this series did a really good job of speaking from the voice of intelligent children. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're a child, you begin to realize that I think the whole journey of childhood is realizing that the world that adults are reassuring you exists is not in fact the world that you're in. And so this kind of like, we need to follow the rules and we need to do this and this needs to go this way is not the way you're seeing the world go. And uh, I think that that's um, interesting. And I think that all children's literature has a part of that in it. Right. Charlotte's Web, a classic children's novel, is about um, cruelty on a farm. Right. It begins with rescuing an animal that a girl likes so it will not be eaten and then leads you into this world in which all of the animals are in danger. Um, underneath the kind of placid fear of farmyard life is the kind of brutal reality of cooking and eating things. Right. No, I, that, uh, that's totally true. Uh, and there are many, many, many other examples, uh, in literature as well that showcase that. Now, I, I know you are, are unfortunate events is obviously, a, a series of unfortunate events is a series that, um, you were probably most known for, but your uh, literary career spans far beyond a series of unfortunate events. I'm going to put it out there and I'm just going to say, tell us about some of your favorite work because we have a community, the community, my community that's going to be listening to this really loves fantasy and sci-fi, but they also love other genres because people, you know, generally aren't pigeonholed into one genre. Um, Talk a little bit about some of your favorite work outside of unfortunate events that you've written under the Daniel Handler name and just, you know, let our community know what they should be checking out. Uh, well, gosh, I guess it depends what you like. Um, 
I mean, it is uh, certainly true that a series of unfortunate events is by far the most visible of my work. Um, there's another Snicket series called All the Wrong Questions, which is something of a uh, prequel. It has to do with Lemony Snicket, uh, his own childhood and how it um, and how he grew up to be the kind of lonely and doomed figure he is. It is um, as a series of unfortunate events is sort of a gothic tradition. This is something of the noir tradition, something, something of a young detective in a, in a lonely town meeting a femme fatale and a shadowy conspiracy. Um, the most recent Snicket book is called Poison for Breakfast, which is something of a philosophical murder mystery. So if you enjoy the digressions and uh, explorations of Snicket in his other books, when he kind of goes off topic, then you might very much enjoy Poison for Breakfast. Um, under my own name, my first novel is called The Basic Eight. It's about a girl in high school who has a crush on a boy. He's not interested in her, and so she bludgeons him to death with a croquet mallet. It's something of a comedy. I've written about adolescence a lot. I wrote a book called Why We Broke Up, which is um, a love story uh, illustrated by Myra Kalman, uh, a painter with whom I've collaborated. I wrote a book called All the Dirty Parts, which is about a very sexually active young man in high school and how that uh, rings out. I wrote a novel called We Are Pirates, which is about some teenage girls who team up with the denizens of an old age home to commit acts of piracy in the San Francisco Bay. Uh, my most recent uh, novel is Bottle Grove, which was uh, is about uh, two marriages during the tech boom and also about a shapeshifter who comes in and disturbs both of these unions. Um, I mean, it's a little hard to go through all of my work, but I like to I like to pursue interests that strike me, and I've been lucky enough to have a career where I don't have to have a real job, so kind of all day long I can think about the things that interest me and put them down on paper. That's my idea of a good time. So there you go. That's a lot of work uh, to check out from Daniel Handler. Leading to my next question, um, you mentioned Joan Hutt. You've obviously not had to work at a real job, so what takes up your time when you're not engaged in some form of creative endeavor? Um, well, most mornings I swim in the San Francisco Bay. Uh, I like to swim in open water. I have a few people who swim with me, and there's an old club at, uh, in San Francisco that um, we do. And then I, I, of course, read a great deal. We're just done now when we're recording this with the month of April. During the month of April, which is Poetry Month in the United States, I try to read only poetry. I'm working on a theater project as well, so that's been something that I enjoy doing. Uh, I do have a cooking, basically, in my household. I have a lot of dinner parties. I take a lot of walks. I like a good cocktail. Uh, I like to listen to all sorts of music. I play the accordion and occasionally sit in with the Magnetic Fields or Stars or a couple of other uh, bands that are okay with having an accordionist stop by. Um, uh, I don't really know what to say. I'm married. I spend time with my delightful wife and our uh, delightful son, and I live in San Francisco, which is the town in which I grew up. And so I have a lot of family here and I have a lot of old friends here. And there's a lot of natural beauty. I like to walk around the beach and the forest and I like to look at the sky and I like to stop someplace and have strong coffee and read whatever book I have with me. Sounds like a very active life. What's next in terms of your writing? Um, well, I have... Uh, written a kind of book that I never thought I would, which is about my own life and about writing and reading. It's a memoir of sorts. So I'm, I'm just finished with the first draft of that. And so I've locked it away for a little bit and I'll return to it soon. I'm working on a Snicket uh, musical 
a new story of Lemony Snicket that will be presented on the stage. I'm working with songwriter Colin Malloy, who leads the band The Decemberists. We're having a oh, grand wow. time uh, making that. Those are kind of what's the most next for me, I would say. I'm a huge Decemberist fan. I've been uh, a fan no, of their work for a very long time. I'm trying to think of the album. Oh, I don't. I'm not great with names. It's the one that it was a concept album. Uh, it came out after the Crane Crane Wife. I mean, in a way, all of the Decemberist albums are uh, concept albums, right? There's uh, the King is Dead, which is, um, I would say, the most uh, kind of country rock. The Hazards of Love was actually based oh. on the show that was put on. Um, the Hazards of Love was the one I was referring to. That's a phenomenal yeah, album. I mean, Picturesque is wonderful. Her Majesty the Decemberist. I mean, there are really some lovely um uh, uh, concepts in all of theirs. They set the old Irish uh, epic poem, The Tain, to music. Um, I'll Be Your Girl, which was a kind of a new wave thing. So, no, that's super cool that you were, you're um, you're collaborating with with Colin Malloy, and it sounds like uh, the memoir sounds awesome, uh, and sounds like it would be uh, a, a lot of fun to read. Do you have a projected idea when uh, readers will, will be able to get a hold of that? Oh, maybe a year from now? We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Okay, that's that's great. I want to ask you this, because I feel like I ask every author that I interview this question, everybody has variations of the same answer and also some differences, and this is usually how I, I, I end my interviews. And I think that you having the added experience and the success that you've achieved with writing probably have some valuable insights. If you could offer new and aspiring writers out there, one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, goodness. I mean, I have so little advice for writers and I have so much sympathy. I think it's very hard when you're starting out because writing is kind of lonely business all by itself. And then the feeling that um, no one might be interested, the gap between your own ability and your own exquisite taste. I think all of that is painful. But I mean, I carry a notebook with me wherever I go so that I can write something down, no matter how nonsensical it is, some little phrase, something I've overheard, something that I've seen, something that occurs to me. And I think getting into the practice of writing that way, even if you're just writing one little phrase, uh, you know, right before a movie starts or uh, when someone's just said something funny over coffee, I think keeping that as a practice, I think keeping pen and paper near you is a great way to write. Excellent advice. So the, uh, what you're referring to is, is sort of like writing prompt. I mean, I think it's even less than that, honestly. I think it's, um, I think it's just practicing the stuff of writing, thinking about why one phrase is more fun to see on the page than another. So just to kind of keep it as a practice, even when it's not attached to something, I think is interesting. Excellent. Very cool. Daniel, where can people find you in both of your incarnations over social media online if they want to uh, delve into your various worlds and, and uh, discover more about your writing? Uh, I do have a website, danielhandler.com. I'm on Instagram where I'm usually uh, taking pictures of poetry that I'm reading. So if you would like a little poetry in your life, you can follow me on Instagram. And then I take long walks around San Francisco. So if you're in San Francisco, you can just come find me. Someplace where there's strong coffee or a cold gin. Sounds great. Well, Daniel, it's been amazing talking to you. Obviously, um, I wish you tremendous success with all the all the projects, the, the numerous projects that you uh, that you have coming up. Uh, well, thank you. I wish you success in your new writing adventures.
Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for being on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. Take care. This has been Authors in Focus. You can find my satirical fantasy novels on Amazon. Need help finding readers? Connect with me on Facebook in the Fantasy Sci-Fi Focus group or at authorsinfocus at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at fantasy-focus.com and where your favorite podcasts are hosted. Mm-hmm.